first time guest with us today, we're really glad to have you with us in our worship service, and we would love to connect with you, uh, and one way to help us do that is uh, to fill out one of those orange cards in front of you in the seat in front of you, and just put that in the offering plate at the end of the service, and we would like to connect with you and, and get to know you, see how we might be able to minister to you, uh, or you can leave the orange card in the box at the worship uh desk in the lobby here. Uh, we've got a few announcements this week. If you want to pull out your, your bulletin that you uh, got when you came in, uh, we want we want to take note of, uh, of a couple of those specifically. So make time to uh, just read through those and, and find out what's going on and be uh, just to be aware of uh, any uh, events that are coming up that uh, you uh, may need to know the info about. Uh, but what we want to focus on this morning Specifically, our announcements is right under the Faith Happening section in your bulletin, and that is our fighter verses. We've had those in our bulletin for a couple months now. This year, uh, 2016, we are going to start memorizing those together as a church. Uh, the the verse in your bulletin uh, is actually our verse for next week, so you could get a head start on that right now. But we have the we have the verse ready for this week right up here, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Let me just say uh, one thing before we read through that together. The beginning of the year, you know, we make our New Year's resolutions, and it is really a great time for us to reset ourselves in the spiritual disciplines. Maybe we've kind of gotten off track throughout the year. January 1st is a great time to to start over uh, afresh in the spiritual disciplines. And spiritual disciplines are, are really just practices and habits that we, we as Christians want to build into our lives to help us to know Christ more and to obey Christ more. That That's the purpose of them. But one of the spiritual disciplines that many, if not most, Christians struggle with is scripture memorization. I don't know if that's true for you. It's true for me. All right. So this is this is a struggle. It's, it's hard to keep consistent with, but it is it is a spiritual discipline that we can gain so much from. So think of think of Bible reading like looking at a snowflake. All right. You you read the Bible. Maybe you you take five minutes to read through a chapter. That's that's great. Look, looking at that snowflake, you can see the snowflake on your glove. It's beautiful just by what you can see with your own eyes. But think about that snowflake under a microscope, and you could see all of the beauty and intricacy of it that you couldn't see just by looking at it. Uh, think of Bible reading and Bible memorization like that. Bible reading it is great, it is beneficial, it should be a part of our lives, but memorization and meditation is like zooming in on that passage, meditating on it, thinking deeply about it. You see, you get so much more of the beauty and the richness and the application about it when you when you turn that passage over and over in your mind throughout the week and, and prayerfully thinking deeply about it. So that's why we need memorization. That's why we need to hide God's word in our hearts. So we want to challenge our church this year to commit these fighter verses to memory. And we could all do this. We all memorize so many things besides the Bible. We could definitely do this. It's just a matter of practice and repetition. So each week in the bulletin, we're going to have the fighter verse that we're going to memorize over the next week. So this is the, the verse that we're going to memorize throughout this week, and we're going to recite it together next week. So I would like for us all just to read through this together, starting with the reference at the top. Deuteronomy 7, 9. 
Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So maybe write down that reference. We are memorizing from the ESV together just for consistency so we could all be memorizing from the same translation together. So, so write that verse maybe in your bulletin. Write it on note cards. Stick it on your bathroom mirror on your dashboard if you can look at it without crashing. And, and, or stick it somewhere where you're going to see it a lot through the week. So it'll be on your mind and you could be memorizing and meditating on that throughout the week. So there, there's also an app uh, through iTunes or Android. So it's $2.99, really cheap. And, and it's a great app. It's got lots of great tools on there to help you memorize these verses throughout the week. So second announcement, second and last announcement that we're going to highlight is our Wednesday gathering, which is going to be starting next Wednesday, 6.45 to 8 o'clock. That is for, uh, uh, so Wednesday night we have our faith kids for all of our children, uh, and we have our student ministry for all of our junior high and high school. We're going to have nursery for all of our younger kids, and we're going to have our Wednesday gathering for uh, the adults to gather together. There's more that God wants us to do as a church than we could possibly do on one service during the week, and we want to accomplish some of that. Uh, on, on Wednesday nights, more prayer together, more Bible teaching together, more time just to, to be together, hear prayer requests, and to, to, to fellowship together and unite together around God's Word and the Gospel in that way. So we really hope that you'll make this a priority in your life. Sunday morning is, we, we want that to be the priority, but second behind that in our life as a church, we want to be our Wednesday night gatherings. We hope that you could make that on Wednesday nights. Before we uh, continue on with our uh, worship and song, let's go to God and prayer together. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to love and to treasure your word for the remarkable gift that it really is. We ask that you would move in us to build this discipline into our lives, knowing the, the great benefit that can be reaped into our lives because of it, knowing and trusting that through it, through memorizing and meditating on your word, you will build into us a greater trust in you, greater love for you, greater love for our neighbors, and greater obedience to Jesus, our King. We, we ask that as we continue to sing praises to you, that your spirit would help us to see how beautiful and glorious you are, how great the gospel is, and how in you, in yourself, in knowing you, we have everything that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the power of the cross. Good morning. It's awesome to be back. Thank you guys for letting me get away from this area for a little bit. I was home for a week, missed a couple services, and Lindsay and I found ourselves really wishing we were back here. <laughs> it was great to be home, but we were sitting there and thinking, it'd be nice to be home, and we're both really excited to be here this morning with our church, because it, it's great to be with my dad's church. He, he has a great church, but it's not home. This is our home church. So we were really happy to, to be back here, and I'm really excited to be preaching this morning. I it's one of my favorite things to do when Daniel asked me. I think I jumped out of my seat and said yes. 
It's because it, it's just a passion that God has given me, and any chance I can get to talk and people have to listen, I take it. So, I'm all over it. This morning, um, I told Lee what I was preaching about this morning as I bumped into him, and I said, he said, what are you preaching on? I said, well, I'm preaching on the power of the youth, as in teenagers. And he goes, well, then can I tell my parents to leave? And I said, no. This isn't just for the young people. Every single person in this church is responsible for what happens in our youth ministry, so you guys have to listen. This isn't just for the kids in the youth ministry and the people that actually you know, are involved and care about the youth staff. But Daniel told me, he said, hey, you're preaching. Why not take a chance to just talk about your passion for youth ministry and just, you just give that a go? I was like, hey, I'll do it. And I get a preach, too. So we're going to look at multiple stories of young people in the Bible who have done some pretty incredible things. And, uh, and I, I'm hoping to convince you guys that the young people in our church are just as capable. So we're looking at people like Joseph, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Josiah, who was a king at age eight. It's pretty impressive. I don't trust our eight-year-olds to be the president, but hey, that was pretty cool. And so we have a lot of great uh, things in the Bible that show us that young people do some pretty awesome things. And our current American culture said, you know, it's almost acceptable, if not expected, for kids in their teenage years to drink, party, do things they're not supposed to do with the opposite gender, and a bunch of other things around the world. It's almost expected, and then they kind of live with their parents till they're 24, 25, and maybe they'll do something later on in their life. I'm here to tell you that that really bothers me. Our, our kids in our youth group are capable of doing some pretty incredible things now. And we need our church to be the ones coming alongside the parents, coming alongside me, and, and pushing them to that excellence. And so, we're going to talk about teens today. Teenagers are an interesting group of people, are they not? They're not quite kids. They're not quite adults. So what are they? The interesting thing is the word adolescent didn't really come around until the past hundred years. You think about it really when it came to be about you know 16 years old, you were a man, it was time to work. Now you're a sophomore or a junior in high school. I mean, not that that's a bad thing, but there's just a huge difference in between our current society and what used to be for the majority of history. So the adolescent word and the study of adolescence is actually a very interesting thing. I, that's why I majored in it, because I love the teens everywhere, and especially the ones in our church. So it's very interesting to look that that really wasn't even a word. It wasn't really a thing until the past 100 years. So now we have this generation of people that aren't quite adults, but they're really not kids we don't know what to do with them. So we stick them into high school, and then we send them to college, and then they come back, and now they're adults. But what I'm here to say is we have kids that are 15, 16 years old that are ready for incredible responsibility. We have kids in our youth group that are you know, AP classes. They're captains of their sports teams. They're considered some of the best at their sport in not only the state, but in some greater areas. We have some pretty awesome kids here. And yet, our current society and culture doesn't expect much of them. That really bothers me. So, uh, so uh, about me, I just wanted to tell you guys why I'm so passionate about this. Well, when I was young, I always wanted to teach. It's just something that's in my family. If they're not teachers, they're preachers in my family. That's kind of how it goes. I don't know how it works that way. I think we all just like to talk. And so we picked that profession that lets us do so. And, uh, and so in my family, we have my dad, my uncle, my cousin, my brother, and my grandpa have all been pastors and youth pastors at one point in their lives. Which is strange, because they never told me I should do it, but it just kind of came naturally. And so I moved into this. After I got saved, I took my desire to teach teens. I wanted to teach history, because that's a fascinating subject. And I decided, you know, hey, 
I got saved at age 16 at a team leadership conference, which I want to take all of our teens to. And I went there, got saved, and, and God really put in my heart a desire to bring other kids my age to a deep, meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where my passion started from, from age 16. And so at age 16, I just got really excited, and so I went to Bible college and, and graduated and came here, and now I'm fired up to be with our kids because we have some incredibly talented teens in our youth group. And I want you guys as a church to come alongside us, come alongside us as in the youth staff and myself, and make them better. There's a current statistic out there that's very well documented that over 70% of teens, once they graduate high school, leave the church and don't come back. Our kids will not be statistics. That, that's, not how, that's not how we should be. There should not be 70% of our kids at Faith Baptist Church that walk away from God and say, I'm done with this. It was never my faith. It was my parents. This faith was never brought to me as real. We're missing a generation of the church that could do incredible things when we don't invest in our youth. And this isn't me just, you know, saying, hey, I need a job, so let's think this is very important. This is me saying we are going to miss a generation of incredibly powerful people for the name of Christ if our church culture and our American culture doesn't step it up a little bit and give our teens some higher expectations. My sister is a teacher in, down in South Carolina. And she's a gym teacher, which she loves to do, and their highest expectations for their kids are to learn the fundamental swing of a tennis racket in gym class. And they're taught they need to think critically in gym, but when they go to their regular classes, they're not taught to think critically. My sister says these kids have no expectations put on them. You know, they come to gym class and they can do whatever they really want. I'm not supposed to do that, but I do because she wants to invest in them. But they go into their classroom and their teacher doesn't really teach. They're not really pushed to do anything. It's just crazy to see our current culture has decided that teenagers are just supposed to mess around from the age of, you know, 11 to 22, and then they'll figure out their life. There are so many people, so many people in this Bible that in that age of 11 to 22, whatever we want to define that as, that have changed the entire world. And I believe our kids can do that. You know, I, I do. That's just who I am. I, I believe in every single one of these teenagers that they can change our world here for the betterment of the gospel of Christ. And I want our church to support me in that. And I want, and not that you guys haven't, but I want to see a renewed passion for us to, to see these teens and just pour into them over and over and over again because they're hungry for the Word of God. They're hungry for good relationships. And it starts at home and then at the church. And that's why I want you guys to come alongside with our youth staff and come alongside with parents and just pour into these kids over and over again because they have such potential. So we're going to look into three particular stories. We're going to look at Joseph and then Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which I'll just call Daniel and Company because that's really hard to say that over and over again. So those should be Daniel and Company. And then we're going to look at Esther. But first, I want to say... Now, what I've said is that, you know, a lot of us, our, our generations, our church may have failed the teens, but I don't want to take all the responsibility off them, too, so teens, you're not off the hook quite yet, because you guys have a responsibility, too. When you see people pouring into you, don't walk away from it, because I remember my dad at one point told me, said, and I'm not proud of this, he said, hey, Wes, I want to see more of God in you and less of you in you. And I said, okay, whatever that means. And I didn't really, one, I didn't understand it, but two, I didn't care. That was on me. My dad was doing his job as a father. So, teens, your responsibility is when this church and when people start to pour into you because they want what's best for you, don't back off. 
take it, accept it, run with it, change your life better for, for Christ, because it takes two two parts. We can't, if we can't just have one, you know, the teens are ready to grow, but if the church isn't doing something, we're not doing any better. But if the church is ready to grow and the teens are saying, hey, leave me alone, we're not going to do anything either. So both parties need to be ready to work together so we can have a bunch of 13, 11 to 18 year olds that are ready to go change the world for the gospel. So we're going to talk about the three stories. So first we're going to look into Genesis 37. That is where Joseph starts. Interesting thing about Joseph is outside, there are very few people that get as much text time as Joseph does in the in the Old Testament. He gets about 12 to 13 chapters, and they're all pretty long. So there's something important about this man, Joseph. Joseph was a young man who had the favor of his dad, which was my older brother. And, uh, and so Joseph... Um, he gets this coat of many colors. And I know you guys all know these stories, but we'll continue to go through these and look at these with fresh eyes. So we, we continue to learn and grow through these stories, even though you've read them longer than I've been alive. So Joseph is, uh, Joseph gets this coat. He has the favor of his dad. And Joseph also has dreams. They're, they're prophetic dreams. Now we're going to look at Genesis 37, verse 5. It said, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Because just in the last verse it said his brothers hated him. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Joseph's not in a great situation. His brothers don't really like him. And to see even farther after this, he tells them another dream. They don't like that either, and neither does his dad, because he sees two, uh, he is a star, and all these other stars come around and worship him, and, and it's just, it's very interesting, because it is prophetic, but we see this young man who's doing some, he's got some pretty cool things going for him. God is giving him prophetic dreams. It, it's kind of cool. I don't know if that's, I don't think that's going to happen to our kids, but that's not exactly the point that I'm going into. But what Joseph happens later is Joseph's brothers hate him enough to sell him. And so we see they, uh, his dad sends him out and says, hey, go take this food to your brothers. They're out in the field. And his brothers have the, uh, I would call it the Committee of Hatred, if I could define it in Wes's terms, because they get together and they say, let's kill him. That, that's tough for the, young, for the second youngest brother to know that, hey, all my brothers kind of want me dead. Um, but he goes and he brings it to them and they, they capture him, they throw him into a pit. And they throw him into a pit, and then they say, oh, you know, his oldest brother comes to the rescue and says, let's not kill him, let's sell him. That's better, right? So it's into slavery. It's so much better. So they sell him. So Joseph's got a tough life so far. I don't know how many of our kids have been tossed into a pit and had their brothers try to kill them and or sell them to into slavery. But we see what Joseph has here is an incredible amount of, I mean, he had to have faith in God. Because at this point, it doesn't read in the text that he walked away. He persevered through some pretty hard times. This is only the beginning of the hard times for Joseph. Joseph, as a young man, went through some incredibly hard times. Slavery. And then we see, so he goes into slavery. That's not tough, but we see he gets sold into, he gets sold at the house of Potiphar. So we're going to jump to uh, Genesis 39 here. Now, Potiphar is a very, very wealthy man in Egypt. And so Joseph's now a slave. He went from being the favorite son to a slave. That's not good for him. Um, 
And this is to, this kind of goes along with what our teens face. I mean, our teens don't face this to an extent where they're being sold into slavery, but our kids go through a lot of struggles. Being a teenager is a lot harder than it was when I was a teenager. It, it just is. It may not seem like that because we, we've gone through that experience before, but our kids haven't gone through these experiences. They're learning all of this as a teen for the first time. They're struggling through, how do I make life-changing decisions when I still live with my parents? I mean, it's just a really hard age. They're fighting through and grinding through all these decisions. They go through a lot of struggles, things at school, things at home, things in their sports. We see these teens face a lot of hard times in life, and they can learn, and we can learn from Joseph to push them to keep faith in God. Because Joseph doesn't appear to lose his faith in God. He appears to still trust in God because we see in Potiphar's house, Joseph has the favor of God on him. So not only, you know, his brother sold him into slavery, that's not so good, but what God intended it for was actually something awesome. Because we see Joseph actually becomes number two in Potiphar's house. Nothing but Potiphar's food, everything except Potiphar's food is in charge of Joseph. It's pretty awesome. That's like, uh, you know, that's our, that's our Kagan, 18, 19 years old. He's in charge of one of the most powerful men in Egypt's house. Everything but the food. So all the runnings of the house, all the farm, all the slaves, all the everything, he is over it. It's a young man with some serious power, and that's small compared to the power that he's going to get in the future. But we see as our teens go through these struggles, it's our job as a church to come alongside them and surround them with the love of Jesus Christ because they need they need a listening ear. They, some, sometimes they just need someone to talk to. And you may not have any idea what to say back, but just to be there to listen, maybe go buy them a Slurpee at 7-Eleven or something, I don't know. But that's what means a lot to them. Just sit, listen to them. So we need, as our kids go through these hard times, just to be there for them. Because they're going to face struggles. They're going to face hard times and temptations. It's just an area, this is a time of life where it happens. And so, our, our, you know, as I said before, our, our culture kind of deems these teens, half-kid, half-adults, that, you know, for the next couple, six years, you can do whatever you want. But then, you know, when you get 18, 20, still live with your folks, don't really need to get a job, just go party and do your thing. You know, whatever makes you feel good about you, go ahead and do it. That's our culture's message to our kids. That doesn't really help them in the hard times because we, we need to be a church that comes alongside them. They, they don't need to have these low expectations. They can be expected to be like Joseph, unwavering in his faith, in charge of a lot of things, a lot of incredible power and responsibility. So, brothers and sisters, I, I tell you firmly, this is not how our teens will be. They will not be what our society says. It, not, not while I'm the youth pastor, at least. That's not, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to make sure that they are godly people that walk out of our doors. And then when they walk into our doors each Sunday and Wednesday, they're being taught the gospel. They're being taught how to navigate this world through a Christian perspective. Our kids have extreme potential to be spiritual giants while they are still living in our home. And that's the best environment for which we can raise them because they are in our home. They, they are with you as parents. I'm not a parent, so if I come across like, you know, dude, this guy's not even a parent. How can you tell me what to do? I'm sorry. I don't mean to. I just get really excited about it, and I'm really passionate. And I know I'm not a parent, but I hope that I can help you guys, and we can help each other as we go through this. So our kids have extreme potential to be spiritually great, like Joseph was, unwavering. And we see another story of, of Joseph uh, in his 
in his uh, spiritual strength and purity when he is confronted by Mrs. Potiphar. Now, this topic always makes people feel a little uncomfortable because Potiphar's wife wanted something less than cordial, or more than cordial, I guess would be the way to say it, with Joseph. And it's just weird to talk about that from the pulpit, but it is, it is something that our current teens are going to face in our culture. I don't know if you guys have listened to the top ten most popular songs or watched the music videos or listened to our culture's like top news story, but it is absolutely filled with sensual content. That is our world right now. It is infatuated with it. You listen to the top ten songs, I guarantee you at least six or seven of them are going to be talking about some sort of casual relations or, uh, you know, nasty, nasty things. That's what our teens are listening to. Our culture is telling them, hey, you know, if you want to be, a, if you're a guy but you're feeling like being a girl today, go in the girls' locker room. It's fine. But that, that's happening in California. People can choose what they're going to be. If you're a guy and you want to be a girl, go for it. No. You were made to be a, either a guy or a girl, and that's what you are your entire life. But our society is telling us some really twisted things with sensuality and all of that garbage. So we need to teach our teens, how do we do this biblically? When we look at the life of Joseph, Mrs. Potiphar comes around and she's saying, Hey, sleep with me. No one's here. No one will ever know. No one would have known. He was alone in the house. And Joseph, first of all, just pieces out. I love that about Joseph. He just runs. Done. That's the best way you can do it sometimes. If you're in a situation that you're tempted, just get out. <laughs> just run. I love that about Joseph. He didn't care what was going on. He didn't care about what, this is, what, what the lady would think about him later. If people saw him running around without a coat on, what they would think. No, he knew. I cannot sin against God, and I cannot sin against my master. I have to get out of here. That important. Joseph identifies something about sin that I think we often forget. Um, in verse, let me catch it here. In verse 7 ish to, uh, to verse 9, in that area, in verse 9, he says, he, he is not greater in this house than am I, just, just talking about Potiphar. Uh, uh, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness against sin? And he doesn't say, I just don't want to do it because it's not right, or I know I shouldn't do it, or anything like this. He says, how can I do this sin? What does it say in your translation? Against God. He understands what a sin is. You know, we oftentimes kind of desensitize sin. Like, I don't want to do this because, you know, it just doesn't make me feel good anymore. I, don't, I want to feel good. Or, or I shouldn't do this because, you know, I want people to think I'm a good person. I want to keep up good presentation. You know, I, I don't want to fall into sin because then people might think less of me. Joseph's not concerned about that. What he's concerned about is God. And he says, I am not going to do this sin against God. That's the way I, I want our teens to think. And that starts with it being taught in the home. That starts with it being exemplified in our church. And so we don't take sin lightly here in our church. We can't be a, sin, a church that excuses sin and say, hey, you know what we all do? It's fine. Like, to an extent, that's true. We all do sin, so we need to be understanding with each other. At the same time, we cannot excuse unrighteousness. We are called to be holy people. And so we cannot let our teens, we cannot let the teens in our family, not even just the ones in our church, but if you have nieces and nephews that are this age, we cannot excuse them and let them fall into our culture's current understanding of sex and sensual things. We, we need to teach them absolute 100% biblical purity. No questions. That's it. And our teens can do that. 
It is, like I've said before, it's our current expectation in the culture that kids are going to mess around for the next eight to ten years. They're going to rebel against you. It's going to be painful. It's going to be annoying. You're going to want to just kick them out. And that's what's supposed to happen. I tell you, no. That's not how it has to be. We look at the story of Joseph. He stood for God. We're only at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They stood before the most powerful man on the planet and said, no, I worship God only. Our teens do not have to become statistics. They do not have to become what is expected of them in the culture because that is extremely low expectations. That is going to keep them down and not allow them to succeed for what's best for them. And I tell you, at this church, and I know you guys are passionate about it, at this church we care about what's most important for our teens and we give them high expectations. That you are capable of changing your world. You are capable of being an awesome person, a well-rounded, excellent student, whatever it is that you succeed at, we are here to encourage them to be great at that, to be greatest most in their spiritual walk with Jesus. It's not what our culture is going to tell them to do. So we need to make sure that we are keeping them in the church, because when they walk out and they go to their first, you know, psychology class, and the teacher says, you are a fool if you believe in a God. And they're going to say, oh, okay, I guess I am. But when they come through this church and they are taught well how to defend the scriptures and they say, and his teacher says, you are a fool to believe in God, they'll say, I don't think so. Let me tell you why. Boom, 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 boom. Proofs that God exists. That's what I want our students to be. Rather, you know, respectful students that don't just say, no, teacher, you're a fool. That's not what I want. That's not good. I like the spunkiness, but don't do it. But being willing to say, no, I stand for what I believe. I did not check my brain at the door when I became a Christian. Just be very strong in their faith, because that's how these next teams that we're going to look at are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel and company. We'll go to we'll go to Daniel here. Daniel chapter one. Now Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were well believed to be sixteen when they were taken into captivity. When I was 16 years old, I was not ready to be taken into captivity. I would not have been prepared to do what they just what they are about to do in this text, but we see they have done in history. So, in order to keep Daniel and company, in order to keep themselves pure and undefiled from the Babylonian captivity they were in, because in that time, you know, Babylon had captured Israel, and they had said, we are going to take your best and your brightest and your youngest best-looking dudes that you got, we're going to take them and we're going to turn them into Chaldean or Babylonian servants. And we're going to say, hey, look, we took your best and brightest and we made them ours. Booyah. We're stronger. That's that's the way you do it, you know? And you take the best and brightest and you turn them into your servants. They said, all right, we're going to get the best and the brightest of the young kids, so Daniel and company, come on over. So they, they take them into captivity and they bring them into the school of the Chaldeans. And they're going to try to raise them to be a Chaldean. So they give them other names as well. So they give them names after their gods, unlike what they had originally, um, the original Hebrew names that they had been given, which were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to completely remove Yahweh from their identity. So you are completely now ours. We have pulled you out. So they're being taught to be Chaldeans. They're even named after the Chaldean gods, all that kind of stuff. So they're being completely removed from their safe net, their culture, their society. No family, no friends, no nothing. Completely gone. And at the age of 16, 
most kids would just say, this is where I'm at, this is what's happened, life's unfair, but you roll with this. Oh, yeah, I'm a Chaldean now, I'm going to serve their gods just to not cause any waves, or, you know, hey, let's buy into it. But what they say, verse 8, Daniel said, you know, it says here, right, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, nor the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, this guy's afraid because he said, I can't go against what the king says, because if I go against what the king says, he'll kill me. That's the, that's the supreme authority of the king. And, and we're going to see later how much that means to Daniel, Daniel and company. There he says, I fear, my, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths of those who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So what Daniel's saying is, I'm not going to be defiled. I'm going to keep myself pure. I'm going to keep myself pure to God. So I'm not going to defile myself with the meat and the wine of the king of of Babylon. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to remain pure. And that's really awesome. Our our teens, they they can change the world through their boldness to worship Yahweh alone. Our teens can do that. It's exemplified here. And I know our kids can do that as well. So, you see, they they are not going to fall into this. They are not going to become, they are not going to become a Chaldean completely. They are still dedicated to Yahweh. And so we see, uh, continuing on, so so Daniel and company, uh, they decided that they were going to just drink water and eat vegetables. And Daniel gives a test. He says to the the head of the eunuchs, "If if your guys over here look better than we are, Okay, we'll go back to eating it. But but if we if we look better, you know, our appearance, our countenance, if we look better after eating just vegetables and just drinking water, then we're going to keep doing it, all right? And they're like, okay, let's do it. And so after 10 days, they come back, and because God showed favor on, favor on Daniel and company, they look a whole lot better than the other guys do, and they've been eating basically paleo. So paleo is biblical is what is coming across here. So hey, that's what we got to do, vegetables and water. Just kidding. I like meat too much to say that. So after doing this publicly, and this being, they stood before the, the chief of the eunuchs and said, we're going to remain pure. God blessed them beyond what is humanly comprehensible. They, they became better in appearance. Not only that, but they, they were smarter than the other ones. So they became in favor with the king and the chief of the eunuchs because they stood up for God. So they, these kids were 16 years old. And they wanted to obey God and desire to be pure above all else. That can be the testimony of our kids. We desire above all else to be pure and to be dedicated to God. Only God. That can be the testimony of our kids. I want that. You want that? I do. I think that would be awesome. So we continue on into the end of their story. We see at the, uh, we continue on after that. We see Daniel's in, uh, interpreting some dreams. He's been given understanding far above anyone else in their court. We've seen uh, in Daniel chapter 3, we're, we're going to jump to their next portion of their story. We see King Nebuchadnezzar, who is very full of himself, decides to build a massive statue to his own glory. And that usually doesn't go over well for people who want to take away glory from God, so we'll see how it goes for him. And so he builds a statue whose height is 60 cubits, and its breadth is 6 cubits, which means it's very big. And he set it up in a, in a wide-open plain so everyone could come and see it. 
He had a real ego trip going on there. He really liked himself. So King Nebuchadnezzar, this is in uh, verse 2, sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication to the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So King Nebuchadnezzar is not only building this huge thing to himself, but he's going to make all of the important people in all of his provinces come worship him at this. So that means Daniel and company, they got to come out. So we see 16, 17, 18-year-olds being put in their faith, being put to test in front of everyone. And it's a wide open field in front of a huge statue. So if you're not kneeling, you're going to be visible. And we see that that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego, quite honestly, don't care if they're told to worship a golden statue of a man. He said, well, no, we're not worshiping that. We worship Yahweh alone. Probably one of my favorite uh, verses in what I think this is where the original teenage spunkiness came from. Is uh, verse 16. After Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have defied the king many times and said, we will not bow down to any other god but Yahweh. He says, well, right before um, Nebuchadnezzar says the words, he'll come soon to regret and said, who is the god who will deliver you out of my hands? That's when you know you've got a power trip going on. When you call out Yahweh and say, can you really deliver out of my hands? It was a big mistake. And so we see verse 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I love that. (laughs) We don't need to talk to you about that, man. The God that we serve, he's going to deliver us. And even if he doesn't, he's more powerful than you. And that does not make Nebuchadnezzar happy. He freaks out. He heats the furnace seven times hotter than it is normally heated. I mean, the dudes that throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, they die because it's so hot. They open the door, death, flames going all over. Crazy. This is a hot, fiery furnace. And they look in there, and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are just standing there. No burning. No screaming. They're just standing there. And also, there's this other one that, according to one of the guards, looks like a son of the gods. There's this brilliant brilliant figure in there with them. And they, they pull him out. And this is what blows my mind about this story. And this is what really shows to me that it is a miracle that God has done. And we should really marvel at this. Because oftentimes I kind of forget about it. But when they stepped out of that fire, they didn't even smell like smoke. Like, if you're within, like, 30 feet of a fire, you're going to smell like that fire. They didn't have the hair singed. They didn't have smoke, the smell of smoke on them anywhere. That's incredible. God did that an incredible miracle. It makes me want to just, like, fist pump and stuff. This is so cool to see. They were in a fiery furnace. He did seven times the usual. They didn't even smell like it. And that's unreal. God can do incredible things. And the response from Nebuchadnezzar is incredible. So he says at the end of this, at the end of the chapter, he says in verse 26, as Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. 
and they walk out not smelling a thing like smoke. Verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar says, Therefore I make it a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. That's incredible. Through, through the standing up of these young men, the most arrogant, power-tripped king who said, what God can rescue you from my hands, probably like 30 minutes ago, just said, anyone who says anything against this God, tear them limb from limb and run their house to the ground. That's amazing. Our teens standing up for Christ can make that kind of impact on the leaders in this community. I can see young We don't have kings, we don't have stuff like that, but I can see politicians, governors, seeing the younger generation stand up for what is right, turning and saying, there's something about this God that these people worship. It makes them very different. They're standing up. What team cares about this area? Well, the teams that come out of our church certainly will. They're going to care about what goes on in their country, in their world, because they want it to be godly. They want it to be Christ-honoring, so they're going to take a part in it. Our teens are going to be very countercultural. I hope they are, at least. That's my goal, is to make them against these low expectations that have been put upon them. Because these kids stood up for God, and the most powerful man said, anyone who says a thing against this God, tear him apart. He is the only God that saves, the only God that rescues like this. That's awesome. Teenagers can change this world if their potential is harnessed and steered in the right direction. I, mean, I don't know if you guys have ever stepped into a high school, but there's like zillions of flyers all over for each individual program that's been set up. Most of these are set up by teens. They, they do this themselves. They want to create a committee, they do it. They want to do this. You know, there's one at, uh, at, at Brighton High School where Lindsay's cousin goes to, and they have this group of kids that during this time they sit in the library, and if anyone who has been bullied or anyone who's having a hard, hard day needs to talk, these six kids are sitting in there waiting for them, their idea. They want to make sure that their classmates are being cared for. That's teenagers doing that. A teacher didn't come up with that. That's really cool. That's what our teens can do. They don't need these low expectations being put on them. They can step up and do these things. There's a book that I forgot to grab to bring up here with me, and it's called Do Hard Things. I'm not crazy about the book. It's, it's a decent book. It was written by two teenagers. These two teenagers that said... I'm done with these expectations being put on me. I want to step up, and we're going to write a book about it. And now it's in, like, 14 different languages. It's kind of cool. And these bo- this book is being published around the world. Basically, what they decided to do is say, we're going to look at stories of teens that have done cool things in their community and around the world. We're going to compile it, write it in a book, and teach other kids how to do the same. 16, 17-year-olds. It's pretty cool. There's some seriously cool things that they can do. If we harness their potential and steer them in the right direction, because then they're going to, you know, uh, do a bunch of other things that teenagers like to do, like my cousins who stood on the roof and lit off Roman candles. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Right direction, not the wrong direction. So that book, great thing. But our church needs to come alongside our youth ministry and raise up godly teenagers that are ready to do things like those two kids that wrote the book. Ready to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and take a stand for God in their world and say, no, I am unrelenting in my worship of Yahweh. Only Yahweh. That would make me really excited if we could do that. So the last one in the story of Esther. 
which is one of what is becoming one of my favorite stories. I really, really like the story of Esther. So, in the book of Esther, we're going to be in chapter 2. We see Esther, so the, 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 I have points over each one of these stories, and this one is, teens can change the world through their courageous stand for God and his people in the face of persecution. So our current culture, our current society, we're not necessarily being fired upon yet for our stance in Christian faith, but I can see that it's something that's probably going to happen in the future. So our kids need to be ones that when there's a threat of persecution or if they want to go around the world and be missionaries, they're not going to be teens that back down. They're going to say, I know my God is more powerful. I'm not afraid of this government because my God is more powerful. I want to go and preach the gospel wherever it needs to be preached because I love Christ. And I know the gospel needs to go there. And so Esther shows us that she stands for, for God's people in the face of you know, if, if the king doesn't really want to talk to you right now, he can kill you, and that's okay. And, and she she stood in the face of that, so we'll go into the story. So many of us all know the story of Esther, but what I learned about Esther this week is many believe she was about 14 or 15 when she became the queen of Persia. So a lot of responsibility. That's a huge position. That is something 14 or 15. I mean, that's awesome. I, would, that, that, I think we have a couple a couple girls in our youth group that could probably do a pretty good job in leadership at 14 or 15. We have some pretty, we got some girls that are go for it. I, I think they would do a great job being the queen of Persia. So Esther, our young woman, our young women in this church have someone to look up to. Ladies in the youth group, read the book of Esther. Act like her. Great idea. She's awesome. So, because she's so loyal and dedicated to God and to the people of God. It didn't matter. She was, those were her people. She was dedicated to them, and she was dedicated to God. So Esther was selected among all the women in Persia to become King Xerxes' wife, because King Xerxes didn't like his wife before, so he wanted a new one. And that's, if you're king, that's how you do things. That's really messed up, but that's how he does it. So he wants a new wife. So he goes out and says, bring me a bunch of, a bunch of women. I'm going to pick which wife I want. And so he picks Esther. Esther was given favor in the eye of the king. I don't think that is, uh, I don't think that was happenstance due to the secret plans that were going on in Haman's mind to bring a serious genocide against the king, against all the Jewish people. Esther was brought to be the queen of Persia as a Jew. I think that's, that was definitely not a, uh, an accident because God doesn't make mistakes or have accidents like that. So, we see Esther, she becomes favor, favorable in the eye of the king. So, the king grants her to be his wife, and now Haman, because he has some jealousy problems with Mordecai, decides that he is going to kill every Jew in the province of Persia. Now, that is a whole lot of people. The Persian Empire was massive at this time. So, that is a whole lot of people that he wants killed because of what happened between him and Mordecai. Now, Mordecai tells, finds out about this plan, talks to Esther about it. Esther goes before the king. Esther goes before the king, even though in that time, if she did not have the approval of the king, like I said before, he could kill her. You come to me, I don't want to talk to you. You approach the Holy One when he didn't want you to. You're dead. Crazy. I don't know, that, that's just messed up, but that's how it is. And so she goes in the face of the fact that her people are about to be destroyed, and the fact that she herself could be destroyed, and she walks before the king and says, there's a plot going on to kill my people, 
if you have, if I have any favor in your sight, stop this from happening. Because he already he allowed it to happen with a signet ring and all that kind of stuff. So he he went back on it because because God used Esther to change his mind and to save his people from genocide. She stood before the king and by at the risk of her own life and begged for these people not to be killed. I believe that our junior high and high school girls can have that ability to stand up and say, hey, you know what? No, this is my God, and these are my people. And these are his people, not, not my people. These are, these are his people. This is my God, his people. I stand up for them. I do not, you, know, you do not talk about my God that way. You do not go against my friends that way. Whatever that looks like, that can be not only the girls, but also the guys. He can stand up in the face of persecution and say, hey, you know what? No. My God, my God, Yahweh. And not, not because of you know me, but because of how powerful God is. And this can be the definition of our teens. Ones who change the world through their desire to be pure and to be strong in their spiritual faith. Their, their desire to be in their courageousness to stand before imminent persecution for Yahweh. These can be the definition of our kids. I, I, well, they're not kids. The definition of our teens. I want that to be the definition of our teens. I want you guys to help me make that the definition of our teens. Because I can't do it by myself. I, I get the kids two days a week, and then if they come hang out with me more, and which I really like, so kids come hang out with me more. It'll be fun. Teens do it. I get them two times a week. I can teach them things two times a week, but if they're being taught something contrary to what I teach, which is the Bible and what we support here at the church, so it's not my power, God's power. If they go again, if they're being taught something against that at home, our two days a week don't mean much. And that's not me saying I'm better than you as a parent. That's me saying we have to consistently teach as a team. We have to teach our kids biblical principles. We have to live them out in front. So that means I got a lot of work to do. Because they're watching my life. And I gotta take care of, I, I gotta make sure I am living right. I gotta make sure I'm teaching them things consistently. And so we work together, parents, youth staff, we work together as a team and say, how do we make these kids better? How do we make them love God more? How do we help them get there? And how do we help them become great people as well? So I need your help. I, I, I can't do it by myself. The church is here to help. I am here to help. And so we, we're here to come alongside parents and in the church as well, because I know there's probably a teen in your life somewhere. So you're not excused. And also, in our conclusion, in the conclusion here, I'll be giving you something that you guys can do for us. But we need, you guys, I, I need parents, parents, I'm here to help. Because our teens cannot become this way if we don't work together and we don't give very consistent biblical teaching and lifestyle for them to model after because they do model after us. But I don't know why they model after me. I don't got it all together yet, but sometimes they do. My nephew does. And I tell him, no, don't do it all the way. <laughs> not all the way. Just, just do the good things, not the other things that I do. But they do follow you. I'm like my dad. It's just the way it is. I grew up watching him, and so I act the way he acts, which is good sometimes. And, and others, you know, whatever. I, I get weird in front of large crowds, or in large crowds. We lived out at the mall last night, and there was like five million people there. It was stressing me out. That's a, that's a, that's a Doug Crawford thing. And so I, I, I act like my dad. I, I talk like my dad. I, that's just the way we are. So your kids, your teens, they're going to do the same thing. 
we want to make sure that we're setting the right example for them. I'm going to do my best, and I'm here to help parents do their best as well. So three things. First one, our first one goes to the teens, because you're not off the hook in all of this either. Because just because you've had the low expectations set doesn't mean, hey, you know what, I'm just going to be here, wait for everyone to come get me, and uh, then we'll go from there. No, you guys have a task too. You need to take your spiritual life very, very seriously. It's the most important thing about you. A.W. Tozer says, your view of God is the most important thing about you. I would say that's true. Teens, take it very, very, very seriously. It's the most important factor of who you are. So take it very seriously. And look for the people and places that have your best in mind. There's going to be a lot of people who say, hey, this is good for you. This is good for you and your feelings and your... But really, they're taking you down a way of doctrine that's not going to lead you to truth. So run to the places that have the best for you in mind. I would say the first one would be here. I would say run to your parents when you need help. They're the ones that know you best. Your mom knows you best. It's just the way it is. My mom still knows me best. Always will be that way. It's just the way it is. Run to your parents when you need help. And then come to us as the church and to me as the youth pastor to our youth staff. It's your job. That's what you've got to do. So the church and the parents. The first two are kind of the same thing, but the first is general. The first is pray and pray and pray and pray and pray because we know God's the one that does the work. So pray for our youth group. Pray for our teens to stand boldly at their public schools because it is not popular to be a Christian right now. It's not popular to have pure standards. It's not popular to not go party. That's not the cool thing right now. The cool thing is to do everything opposite of what I've been preaching. That's what our society is pushing. And so we need a whole lot of prayer. We need a whole lot of prayer. The second thing is much like prayer, but it's something we're going to be doing as a youth group and something I've been talking with Daniel about. We're going to be starting a program called Prayer Partners. That's where each individual ch- uh, team in the youth program will have one adult in the church that is dedicated to praying for them. So if you are a member of this church that says, hey, I really care about the youth ministry, but I can't get incredibly involved, you know, being there for activities, stuff like that. Or if you just say, hey, I pray a lot. I would beg you to say, I want one team that I can pray for, meet with, whatever it is. I would tell you this is a great thing because my prayer partner in high school, because we did this at my youth group, wrote me a letter to be read at my bachelor party. My prayer partner still sends me a Christmas card every year. It's one of, one of the people I look up to most. His name's Joe Hart. Love that man. He has taken such an interest in my life, and he, he, he made me feel like, hey, you know, people do care about me at the church. You know, I walk in and walk out, many people don't stop and talk to me, but Joe Hart always does. Even when I was coming back from college, he'd stop me and say, how's your grades? How are you doing? How can I help you? Is there anything we can pray for in particular? I mean, this is like this is five years after I've been in high school, and he still asks me those questions. I want those relationships to be available to every single one of our teenagers. So we're going to be doing prayer partners. So once the information comes out, there'll be a sign-up sheet. So each individual adult or family, if you want to do it that way, I, I would encourage parents of teens to pray for another teen youth group or your own. I know you already do. But sign up for that. That is a way for you to get into the lives of our kids because this is, this is the church. They're not the, you know, they are the future generation, but they are also the current generation of the church. We're not the youth group and the church. We're one together. And so I would say 
be a part of the prayer partners. You know, I, like I said, I know I'm not a parent, and I know I don't, haven't gone through that struggle, but I have a quote here that I want to read that I enjoyed thoroughly, and I hope you guys will as well. It's from a guy named Rich Gritter. He works with uh, Bethany Ministries. He's their guy who's head over all the children and youth program. He says, in our own families, we can continue to have expectations of our teens which communicate confidence that they can make good decisions, be productive, and treat others with respect. High expectations paired with love, respect, and grace can offset the negative messages teens are getting from much of the rest of our culture. Revising expectations in your home may cause some shockwaves to ripple in the space between your teens' headphones. I like that. I would start with an apology to your son or daughter that you have fallen into the trap of low expectations for them. Tell your teen that you know how capable he or she is. Be certain the, all the entire conversation is bathed with grace and love. Then begin promoting the expectations you know are vital to success as an adult. I love that. I love that. That, that, that is a family that is healthy. And we want to make healthy families here at this church. We want to have healthy families so we have healthy teens, we have healthy kids. And so they come through spiritually ready to be adults. So I leave you with that quote, but I also leave you with just, please come alongside us. Our, our culture doesn't expect much of our kids, our teens. But the Bible tells us there are some seriously cool teenagers out there who have done some seriously sweet things for the name of Jesus Christ. And our kids can be the, the ones who follow in their example. We can have kids that, that, that they defy those who say, you cannot worship God. And they say, yes, I will. Yes, I will. My, my God is the true God, and they will preach the gospel to people unrelentingly. They'll be ones that are on fire for God, ones that will stand up to their peers and say, you know what, I know I'm not going to go do this because my God calls me to high standards. I'm going to go to church because I want to become a better person. There will be ones that are defined by the gospel, that they forgive people because they have been forgiven. They, they, they love people because they have been loved, where they seek to make the best of their relationships and their activities and what they do, because that is what they can be. They can be the next Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They can be the next Esther or Josiah or whoever. I mean, even Jesus as a young man did incredible things. So we can push our teens to be that next generation that stands up and says, you know what, I know our culture is shying away from God, but we never will. We never will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the gospel that brings us into a relationship with you. Lord, I pray as we seek to make the teens in our youth group greater, that you will make us greater people as well. Lord, I pray that you will bring to this church revival, that you will bring to this church more teens and more parents that are just so on fire for the gospel that it changes this society and this culture. Lord, I pray for America. We, we need you. We need revival fast. Lord, the, the way our society and our culture is going is not making us better people, but, Lord, making us worse. So I pray that you will bring incredible change to our culture, Lord, and help that be through your church. Lord, help us to be countercultural in the way we love, the way we forgive, the way we interact with those around us. Lord, help us to be gospel and grace-filled people. Lord, change us this day. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.